Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Are you looking to take your knowledge of faith to the next level? Oh, yeah! You've come to the right place. Welcome to Post-Christian Pastors, broadcasting from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The podcast hosted by four pastors as they discuss relationships, faith, pop culture, current issues, and much, much more. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Post-Christian Pastors. Yes! We are here, back again. The boys are back for episode number 12. It's uh, Thanks for joining us here on Post-Christian Pastors. And uh, I'm, my name is Mark Helso, and I am here along with the band. And uh, let's go around and uh, introduce ourselves. The band is back together, so playing bass, or I don't know, what do you want to play? What Tambourine. What, what instrument? <laughs> Triangle? <laughs> Is who? John Price. What instrument are you play? I'm playing the uh, bass. Bass. Yeah, nice. You're in bass. the back jamming on the bass. Boom, 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 nice. Did boom, you see that? Did boom. you see that ad where it talks? It's like a funny ad. It talks about. Uh, uh, it's like a satire. It's like a band left their bass player in a hot car. Did you ever see that one? <laughs> no. Like the windows all up. No. It's like the band left their bass. They left their bassist in <laughs> the hot van. John's got the bass day. line. Yeah. Uh, John What's is our, our bass. John is our bass line. He is. He, he is. It. He keeps us together. Seeing uh, Marv Nelson on the cajon. Mike Arnold, I like to play the variety of percussion instruments, you know, like the triangle, tambourine on the hip, and the little shaker, the egg shaker. I like <laughs> all those things. Bizarre. That's I where I'm at in the band. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> What are like you, the finger, what are you symbols? finger symbols? Finger symbols. Finger symbols. Oh, All man. the little toys back there. Those are mine. What do you got? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to play lead guitar. <laughs> I just want to be a rock star. That's it. Be up front. I could do wow. the cowbell. People it, be yelling I, 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 I really more cowbell. Cow, I need more cowbell. Yeah. I actually have a friend who uh, is a really good guitar player and wor- worship pastor, and I've always said I would love to be you. I would just <laughs> trade everything to be... The, skin, the skinny and, jeans. Yeah, the well, not the skinny <laughs> jeans. I, that would be bad. But <laughs> but everything else, I would take. I would like trade it all in. So there you go. Well, we are glad that you've joined us uh, for this episode of Post Christian Pastors. And hey, we got to start out. This this episode is about today. It's called Finding Hope. And I found we, some hope. We do. We have <laughs> to acknowledge. Some. We have to acknowledge. I this found. is the the first podcast we've recorded since the Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA <laughs> final. Champions. <laughs> champion. 50 champion. some odd years it of silence. Feels, I want to tell you guys, this feels so good. <laughs> How many like years? Walking around How many years was it face. for Cleveland? 52 years, but. Yeah, 50 something. Um, I mean, it felt really, really good. You're like, this See, is hold on, but I just say like? something. Now you know how the normal Steelers fan feels. <laughs> Well, normal Pittsburgh fan. Boom. We yeah. just won oh, the Stanley, the Stanley Cup. Cup. How could I forget about hockey? All I know is right now on top of the mountain, guys, and there's nothing you can say to take me. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you, I go, could did you say, go to the parade? I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm I on top of the can't even hear I'm me. You here. can't hear me. I, did you go to the parade, Mike? I, can't, I really wanted to. I had to work that day. Oh, I wasn't able to get there. I no. Really, 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 really All I got to say like, is you can't see me. game six 
was rigged. That's all I gotta <laughs> say. Bull. Game six of the championship. Hey, Steph Curry fouling out. Don't Come on, Steph Curry's a baby. baby. Throwing his mouth, dude. He's, he apologized immediately. Don't, don't yeah. behave. Yeah, don't do. be that doesn't guy. Ma- it doesn't make. Don't be doesn't that guy right. that rains on I his. I punch you in the face right. and then apologize immediately. It still doesn't make it right. All right, all right. I'm just saying my personal opinion of one game. That's all. Don't I be, think, don't I think be that the guy, king, Marv. The don't king be the guy it. who the king deserves. I thought it was a completely fair game. Don't be that guy. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> but you know what? I'm still on top of the mountaintop. Don't take. <laughs> don't me be down. that guy that ruins. Uh, hope that has ruins. been found in Cleveland. That's all I gotta say. There's the new city of hope. Mm, at least I can't for bring me down. A short time. Cleveland city Until champions. Bring me down. City of champions. Cleveland, Ohio. City all of. Right. A well, champion. we had to get that in for you. So thank you. It is nice. We're sitting. You know, we have the Stanley Cup in Pittsburgh, and we have the. I don't even know what the NBA trophy is. Is what I don't know what it's the Larry called. The Larry O'Brien Trophy is that what it's called? Yeah, Larry no O'Brien. Pittsburgh. No one in no one knows basketball, NBA basketball in Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's why we we actually I was watching the Facebook that night from all my Pittsburgh friends, and there was a lot of love for Cleveland. Yeah, I got there a lot was, of support. There was a lot, a lot of love, but that'll be the only time ever. Because so. <laughs> we don't have an NBA team. We, we don't win the Browns win the Super Bowl. I probably won't get the same. Support. Oh no, you no. I got no, hope there. That, there. That'll be. I gotta a, hope it's my next object. That'll hope. be a lead balloon. That one will just. That ain't gonna happen though. So, <laughs> anyway, so we are shifting gears. We got to shift gears out of that. And um, Let's do it. but we are thankful. We are thankful to Mike. That was good. We, we, I was excited for you. I wrote you yeah. right away and I said, "Hey, awesome." Feels That's, tingly. I like it. Feels good. <laughs> Feels tingly. I'm happy for you. <laughs> you might need to go to the doctor for that. That's what you said. <laughs> All right. I think that needs. It. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, it's been a junior high kind of day. So since we last recorded, we had this you know, major thing happen in, here in America yep. where we had the, um, the shooting in Orlando. Yep. And, um, you know, uh, a very uh, a moment, I think, which people, you know, in the nation, uh, it's very disturbing. It's, it's, it can, it can kind of suck the hope out of you. You know, yeah. where you realize where where are we going? What's yeah. what's the future look like? And 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 it probably didn't touch any of us personally, but you know, this is these are hard times where people struggle with hope. Yeah, and they don't really they don't really <laughs> see reasons to be hopeful. Well, I, you know, I have I have friends that uh, you know are of that um, that lifestyle. I, it was really hard for them to to accept that somebody just because of their choice of sexuality that they would be murdered that way and and and, and in fact i would it many people called it an act of terror as well uh and and it, and it was well and that's the question was it a was it a terrorist act or was it a hate crime or was it a mixture of both probably was in some yeah. way a mixture i think of it was a mixture of a whole bunch of mental right. illness a whole bunch a of lot things of stuff that were you know in there but yeah, definitely and, had the same effect nonetheless on right. people and and it definitely sucked the hope out of them thinking that there was so much that was going right uh in, in society but then it was just a stark reminder that there's still a whole lot of hate, not just for for those that choose that lifestyle, but just hate in our world in general. That's a good point. Yeah. So, so you know, we, we, we're not going to talk about it a whole lot here. We just wanted to, you know, kind of as a backdrop for this whole topic where we're talking about hope is to is to look at. We're going to have uh, Mark Osterreicher on, who's going to talk about his book, Hope Casting, which yep. is a great look at what is hope really yeah and um there's a difference between is he'll you'll hear him talk about difference between hope and optimism right and i think 
we tend to be optimistic people in America. I, I think people nowadays, though, that's they're even struggling with that. Yeah, and he also says, you know, hope comes in difficult times. And so I think it's a timely book. It's a timely yeah. message for for some that are really wrestling with this. And we're seeing this not just in Orlando, but other wrinkles in culture that we need something to hope for as yeah. people. Right. I mean, it's a, it, it, brings, it brings out what what we all know, right? I mean, if we're, if we're all honest, we know that there are things in this world that 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 suck hope away right yeah, that yeah. are just so awful and and difficult to to uh to uh, to process that uh we do need a, a true definition a true understanding of biblical hope right. right we have to understand where that comes from and you know just a just a small picture of that i was at uh our the denomination that i serve i was at our general conference this past week sure. and uh i met a guy who's church planting in our denomination and the church that he's planting is right around the corner from from the nightclub wow. from pulse wow. okay and he shared about you know some you know while it indeed was an awful awful act and just just awful things that uh transpired there there are pictures of hope right that have come out of that right and their church has really been able to uh to minister uh to that community there uh, to be to be a part of uh bringing some healing and and, and hope through the gospel uh, in that in that time so I think, you know, even in the midst of the of tragedy like that, we still see glimmers of of hope. We still see kind of those the the incoming of the kingdom, right? Yeah, where sin yeah. abounds, grace abounds more, right? And well, there's an opportunity always to bring grace in those moments. Absolutely. So. I think an important thing that Marco highlights in the book is this understanding that we we don't just have a hope for the future of heaven, like oh we can we can suffer through this life and yeah. and we know that we're going to have this great eternity, which is but, true, w- which is true, but right. it, it's it's a focus on how to get up in the morning and how to really have have the hope of heaven now because part of the scriptures that, that Jesus unpacks this reality that heaven should be now, that we should begin to see glimpses and glimmers of heaven now rather than this off the shore distant hope, but we can have that hope now and live within it. And I think that's something that's very important for us in the midst of these types of ideals and these types of painful experiences that, that we can have the hope of God now. Uh, and it's not something that is just far-reaching and distant. That's great. So this show is all about finding hope this week, so don't go anywhere. We will be right back here on Post-Christian Pastors with Mark Osteraker. Stick around. I was 16 on the run From the God who changed my heart My sins were deep, but love was catching me. Welcome back here on Post-Christian Pastors, and uh, we have a great guest coming up today. Really excited about uh, the guy we have coming on, and um, as we continue this conversation about hope, and talking about hope in our lives, and hope in the world, and all that kind of stuff, and living in a world that sometimes seems like it has very little hope. Yeah. Uh, the guy we have coming on right now is Mark Osterreicher, and uh, Mark, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Mark. Uh, I know him, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but he is a partner in the Youth Cartel, which is an organization that provides services and resources and training 
and coaching for individual youth workers and organizations. They do an amazing job. It's good stuff. Coaching and teaching, and they have great resources for youth workers. Um, sounds dangerous. Sounds Yeah, the youth cartel. It sounds dangerous. <laughs> sounds, sounds dangerous. We'll have to ask him about that. He is the former president of Youth Specialties, and that's where I came uh, to know Marco, as I call him Marco. I think we can call him that during this. Uh, he's the former president of Youth Specialties. He was also part of the leadership team of Zondervan, you know, mm, Zondervan sure. Publishing and, yep. and all that stuff. He's authored or contributed to more than 70 books. Crazy. Yep. We pick on Marv because he's written one book. Two. Two. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> first one, so, apparently, wasn't that good. First one he never talks about, <laughs> it so it wasn't. must not be that, that good. <laughs> but Marco has authored or contributed to more than 70 books. Um, one of the big ones was Youth Ministry 3.0. Great book. Uh, great book. But also, and he actually came here to Pittsburgh and uh, talked about that book. Uh, he did a little seminar for youth workers when he was here. But the book we're going to talk about today is uh, Hope Casting, Finding and Keeping and Sharing the Things Unseen. It was his first general audience Christian book. You know, also about Marco, he's an avid cigar smoker and the most traveled man that I know. He's personally the most traveled man I know. He's been to 48 different states and 47, I believe, it might have gone up, we'll ask him, 47 different countries. Wow. So he's... and been around. A, and about his cigar smoking, he just posted on his blog, which is uh, widely read, uh, called Cigar Theology. Nice. It's really good stuff. Nice. So, welcome, Marco. How are you? Hey! I'm doing <laughs> great, guys. Thanks. Nice. Well, welcome. We're glad that you're joining us here. Was that a good enough intro? Was that was that good enough? Uh, we cover the bases there? That was uh, yeah, absolutely lovely. Let me just clarify, though. It's not only you who calls me Marco. Uh, it's like yeah, the world. Even my parents call me that. So that's, that's, it's not just you have permission to call me oh, that. Oh, okay. So your parents <laughs> even call you that. Everybody calls me that. Yep. Everybody. It's just easy. Marco it's is just... way easier. I'm like Madonna and Cher. It's just easier to have one <laughs> one name. So I know you were just I know you were just on kind of a world tour. Tell us a little bit about that. You just got back. Uh, I think I don't know yesterday. if I'd call it a world tour. I was in Jamaica on a mission trip for a oh. week. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little overreaching on that one. <laughs> Mark Mark gets confused sometimes. It's the first time Helsel's ever exaggerated. <laughs> It was my uh, eighth country outside of the U.S. this year, so okay. you could say I have toured the world this year a little go. bit. There you there go. You. So that, that helps a little bit. Yes. Well, let me before we jump into this, I just wanted to kind of give you uh, guys uh, in, listening to this podcast a little insight. Uh, I, I actually got to work uh, with Marco uh, and for him because he was the president of the company. I got to work there uh Starting in 2003 and worked there uh, until 2009, and uh, so he's the head of youth. Spe- he was the head of youth specialties at the time, and you know when you get that kind of opportunity and you walk into that kind of thing where it was an amazing opportunity, sure. you always wonder what kind of the people who you see on stage your whole life. You kind of wonder what they're going to be like in real life, Are and so douchebags. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so you got to go behind the <laughs> curtains, and you know before we before we get going here, I just want to say that. When I got the chance to go behind the curtain, what I found was... So you and Marco went behind the curtain together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 
you'll never get through this. Um, but we, I just found that I found that what I found is Marco was um, he was just the, one of the most authentic people that I ever met, and uh, it like working at U Specialties was the most. I always say this: it was one of the most holy places at the same time that one of the most unholy places that I ever worked at, all at the same time. And the reason I say that is because mm. there were people that loved Jesus there incredibly, and they were just so real and authentic about yeah. what was going on in their lives and who they were and it was just such a great environment and Marco's one of the people that m- helped create that environment so I just want to say as we start this out Marco thanks for for just being who you are and thanks for um, doing what you did and and the leadership that you gave there oh it was a great honor to, to get a chance to do that so appreciate you and and uh, you know it was good to go behind the curtain and find that what you see is is the real thing and so it was really cool. So, hey, I wanted, I wanted to dive good in. Good years. Yeah, good years. Uh, I wanted to dive into the book, uh, Hope Casting, with you and, um, and start out by saying David Crowder, everybody knows who David Crowder is. He said this, he said this about you. He said, Osterreicher redefines hope or better yet pulls us back to a workable set of postures for receiving hope. This book reminds us that hope is a beautiful gift an influx of Jesus into our dark and dry souls. Nice words from David Crowder, who knows a little thing about writing. Uh, he's yeah, written he does. some great songs. So, mm-hmm. Marco, tell us a little bit about. So, you were the youth ministry world, and still are. Uh, but then you decided to write this book on hope, which seemed to kind yeah. of outside what would people call your wheelhouse or whatever. Tell us a little bit about what led to you writing a book about hope. Yeah. Well, I would say, uh, pr- I would probably guess I'd say there were two primary factors that led me to writing it. One was um, going through uh, a very uh, seemingly hopeless season of my, mm-hmm. of my life and really struggling to find uh, anything to hold on to that felt like hope. Right. Um, and we'll, we can unpack that. Yeah, the, other, the, the other one was that I... Um, I felt like I had a couple pretty significant aha moments about hope um, and about what I've come to see as the um, American lies about what hope is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that just kind of led me on a, onto a journey of um, starting to figure out what the Bible actually teaches about hope. So yeah, it was those kind of two uh, two factors. I mean, it, it really started as a personal quest that I needed for my own, uh, you know, just sense of thriving because I wasn't thriving for uh, about a year and a half. Um, yeah. So, so tell, that us, was, tell us a little bit about that story. How did you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I realized that my my life has been pretty easy comparatively. There are so many people who struggle with uh, levels of pain and suffering. Uh, and uh, even exile that just I don't have a point of reference for. But I did go through, at least in the spectrum of my own pain, I went through uh, a pretty difficult uh, year and a half, two years uh, it, at the end of my time at Youth Specialties. Right. Uh, we had you know, a corporate parent who right. <laughs> was trying to uh, remake us. Right. Uh, um, and... I, that last year there was just soul deadening for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was trying to straddle this line of keeping YS from being shut down or dismantled 
while still appeasing the bosses, um, and it wasn't working. I was trying to, uh, you know, protect the jobs of the 30 or so people who worked at YS, plus all of our people like you who are kind of in our world, yeah. uh, and, and, and as well as just the thousands of youth workers who uh, needed what we provided. Yeah. And it was just an, an impossible it was a lose-lose situation. There was no avenue forward that felt like uh, it was going to win. And I just was killing me. Um, and so then that culminated in me being laid off as that that organization kind of got broken into pieces and sold off. Yeah. And, the, you know, the losing my job was really just a business decision. So it, at, at one point. At one level, you could say it was just not a big deal. It's just how things happen. Um, it's not like I was fired or something like that. But it was handled so poorly that it just gutted me. Um, and it left me in a place of just being very unsure of what my future might even be uh, at all. Um, it left me hopeless. It left me riddled with fear um, about a wide variety of things. Um, and, and really, really struggling. And that, that, you know, stretched on into the next year, but it was, I would say it was fairly early on after my departure from YS that I started to have some of these aha moments that really became, you know, a gift from God in that space. It's still, there was still a lot of healing that needed to take place, but, um, I felt like I had some glimmers of, uh, insight that we're providing, uh, some possibility for me and that started to reshape some things Very yeah, cool. this this is marvin you know i've read uh, a significant amount of the book and in hope casting you stress that hope cannot be earned but can only be given as a gift and that gift is given along the road of suffering which you just unpacked a little bit of yours and you offer a new definition for hope that uh, is is good at explaining this and it is faithful confidence that God continues to author a story that moves us from vision to action and and I really I really enjoy that definition because it, it's it's an active thing it's not a passive thing as you mentioned in the book what what was it that kind of gave you that aha moment uh, of redefining that and if you don't mind Mind explaining the definition as well. Yeah, you bet, Marv. Um, well, really, the the initial point of uh, of aha for me was standing in a street in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, three weeks after the massive earthquake in 2010 that leveled that place. Um, and I had just in the last couple hours, I was there with a, a small group of youth workers on a little reconnaissance mission to try to figure out if it made sense to bring groups to Haiti. Uh, and uh, I, had, I had just experienced some uh, stories of a couple people, uh, Haitians, that had gone through just a level of pain that I, can't, I couldn't even fathom. You know, we'd, we'd met with this woman in a hospital who um, was likely to lose her leg. And she talked to us about, you know, three weeks earlier when her house collapsed upon her and her mm. twin 15 months old sons were in her arms. And one of them was instantly killed as the house crushed them. And it, that baby was broken into pieces was the words that she used. And she was pinned under the rubble for three days. Um, 
and the other, her other son died during that three days. And I mean, just that level of pain was something that was so far beyond my uh, right. radar, right? Sure. But it was right after that that I was found myself standing in this uh, sea of people in what I initially thought was a protest. There was about a thousand people on the street, and I thought it was a protest, but then there was this moment where I realized that because of the language barrier and my assumptions that I brought to it, I was thinking it was a protest, but I suddenly realized that it was not a protest, but it was people worshiping. There was like a thousand people jumping around, singing praises to God, and um, and there were these uh, old Haitian ladies who'd grabbed my hands and forced me to dance with them. And I, <laughs> wow. they're laughing and smiling wow. and singing praises. And I'm weeping and jumping around in my awkward, fat white boy dance. And, <laughs> and in that moment, I had this really uh, interesting experience. And it, it's not one that I've had before. I know uh, people talk about when scripture pops into their mind and stuff. And I haven't had that experience very often. But. Um, in that moment, I remembered a verse that I'd memorized as a, as a kid, verse from uh, Romans where, um, where Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, mm-hmm. perseverance, character, and character hope. And it, yeah. and it struck me that these people around me, all of them, have experienced more suffering than I will likely ever experience in my lifetime. And yet, they are experiencing more hope and it's not in spite of their suffering, but because of their suffering. Yeah. And uh, and at that so- point, right in the middle of it, I mean, it's three weeks into it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And suddenly, that passage made sense to me, and it, and I realized, man, we we have just been sold this American lie that hope and optimism are the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know that we can, if we just employ the power of positive thinking and if we just bear down and think positive thoughts and see the glass as half full then <laughs> then we right. then we can uh embrace hope have hope in our lives and uh, and thrive as people and that's just not true now let me be clear about something. I'm pro-optimism. I like optimism. I'd much rather be around a, a bunch of optimists than a bunch <laughs> yeah. of like pessimists, yeah. right? right. No, yeah. so Debbie Downers. Optimism is <laughs> great. In fact, I think I said somewhere in the book, like I said, optimism is great for a sprint, but hope is needed for a lifelong journey. Hmm. And that's really what I was finding in that period. That's, that chapter of my life was that the little bursts of optimism Optimism weren't enough. Like I, they weren't enough to get me out of bed and help me to embrace a day that felt like it was going to be tough. That I needed something more than that. Um, and yeah, that's where that uh, struggle to understand what biblical hope really looks like uh, came from. And Mark, to your question about the definition, it really came out of digging into oh, two sources. I would say the Bible, of course, but. Indirectly, that really came from reading a lot of the works of Walter Brueggemann, who I think mm, is the he's awesome. uh, probably our leading theologian when it comes to understanding hope, uh, yeah. and particularly what he has to say about the messages of hope in Scripture found in some of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, and so that was kind of my guidebook for looking at hope from a different perspective that was not just about wishful thinking. Hey, Marco, this is John. That, that like uh, segues into... Another question is, 
Uh, there's been a lot of books written about hope. I can think of like uh, uh, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Red. I can think of some other books that have been recently uh, written about hope. What makes the, yours different? I mean, you've already brought up, a, I think, a little bit of that, but uh, can, you, uh, can you expound on that a little bit? What makes uh, this book on hope different than some of those others? Yeah, you bet. And, uh, and, and Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, is such an exquisitely fantastic yep. book. Yeah, yeah, great book. I will say that when I was doing my uh, research and reading, uh, you know, dozens of books on hope, as well as just looking at what was offered in the Christian publishing world on hope just by perusing Amazon, what I found, <laughs> yeah. uh, the vast majority of books, well, I would say that the Christian books on hope tend to fall into one of two ca- two categories. One is they're books for people who are in the process of uh, bereavement, hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. Um, and so they're a little more of a counseling approach to processing your pain from the loss of a loved one or something like that, um, which are all good and helpful in their place. It's a, it, but it's a different thing. They don't usually have a theological unpacking of what hope really looks like. Um, yeah, we had Beth uh, Slebkov on. Oh, yeah. And Beth's book is uh, yeah. really, I would say, one of the best books on hope uh, that I've read. I loved, I loved her book. Yeah, it was uh, great. She's a dear friend of mine uh, and a close friend of my wife's. So, um, the other category that was frustrating to me was that when books got close to theology, and, I, you know, my book, I would say, is a kind of a popular level theology of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not like a hardcore theologian, so I don't have that capacity. But in a sense, it is a theological book. Um, and I would say that most of the books that addressed hope from a theological position at all, they only were talking about heaven. They were only talking about the afterlife. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in a sense, uh, while I don't know that any of them would have said this directly, their definition of hope in almost all of those books was we can have hope in this crappy world that we live in because we don't have to stay here. Right. That was right. the bottom line of all of them, and it kind of ticked me off. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, I mean, far who, who am I to criticize N.T. Wright? Because he's, I think, our, probably our greatest living theologian, uh, and his book is so wonderful and helpful. But even his book is primarily a book about heaven and yeah, the afterlife, it is. which is, it's helpful in that respect, but it still didn't really help me in terms of the answers that I needed to get out of bed every day. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I was- so I I actually, I actually thought you were going to say category two was Joel Osteen. <laughs> <laughs> Happy clappy. No, he wouldn't even call it hope. He just... Uh, <laughs> positive thinking. For Think positively. <laughs> yes, that's right. By the and way, I want people to know that on this podcast, if you hear the birds in the background, we're not adding those in like well, as like you CB, talk. Like CBS as, did yeah. for the Masters. <laughs> yeah, as you talk about hope, we're adding birds <laughs> in. Right. So it sounds like, oh, we're he talking about hope. <laughs> tweet, tweet, tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I love I'm the sitting, sound effect you're giving us. <laughs> I'm sitting in my backyard. Oh, there's a dog too. Yeah, I think hey. every time you talk, Marco, it's birds sing. <laughs> I, I heard an airplane too. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful great. thing. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, that's I think, and and it sounds a little arrogant, and I don't mean it that way, but I do think that's what separates my book. At least that's what I was. Let's say that's what I was attempting to do. No, it's good. Was not write one of those two categories, but instead 
find something that would be helpful to me and others who were looking for a hope that would provide fuel to get out of bed and embrace the day. That, that's what I was looking for. The Bible has so much to say about that. I was surprised I didn't find more written on that. Hmm. Yeah. Marco, this is Mike. Um, you talk a little bit about the exile, and hope is often birthed in difficult or dark moments of our soul. Talk a little bit about that, your exile, and, and why hope is birthed in those moments. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, very much Brugamanian language, if I can coin a word there. I like that. Yeah. Brugamanian. Brugamanian. Hmm. Yeah, right? I'm tweeting uh, that right now. <laughs> sounds like a bagel. <laughs> sounds like a coffee. Most, yeah. Most, uh, the most thorough unpacking of hope in the Bible really is the book of Isaiah, which is a full, uh, in one way you could look at it as a full discourse on hope. Um, and that idea of hope coming to us in a place of exile uh, is very much from Isaiah and, and in my understanding, from my readings uh, of Walter Brueggemann's works. Um, and so, and I, I came to see that in my own experience, I came to see it in the stories of people that I know, and I came then to see it in all kinds of stories all over scripture. I mean, you look at the story of the bleeding woman, it's such a classic example of this. Here's a woman who, in a sense, has been in 12 years of exile, right? right? Yep. I mean, her physical healing was a really big deal. There's no question of that. But I think the bigger healing that took place for her when she reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' cloak and it received instant healing, it wasn't just the physical healing. The bigger deal was her 12 years of loneliness and exile that she'd been living in because of the house arrest she would have been on because of her uh, quote-unquote uncleanliness based on Jewish purity laws. Right. And that uh, place of exile, it's not just a painful place that some of us experience from time to time. It's in the midst of that exile that once we're honest with ourselves and with God, that Jesus comes to us in that place and brings hope along with him. Uh, this is one of the reasons that uh, what became clear to me is that hope is not something we can drum up in and of ourselves. It's not our effort that creates hope. It's instead uh, a gift that comes to us with the presence of Jesus, which is a very different framing than bear down and uh, employ wishful thinking and be optimistic and those yep. kinds of you know, even the bumper sticker theology of let go and let God, which still, in a sense, puts the onus on us that we're the ones that have to take these steps to make hope happen. Uh, when in reality, uh, we have some posturing to do in order to open ourselves up to receive the hope that Jesus so graciously and abundantly wants to bring to our lives. Yeah, it's way beyond just like, well, buck up, little camper. You know, like, yeah, pull yourself together. and yeah, yeah. look for the silver lining. <laughs> Mark, talk about that posture. I'm curious. What is the proper posture we got to put ourselves in to receive hope? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's two, or you might even say three uh, stages to that. I hate, I hate to maybe use that, that kind of an idea of stages because it makes it sound like a formula and this is really not a formula or a three-step process or, right. you know, something like that. But there are, I, I think, three actions. Uh, the first one is honesty with ourselves. Uh, and really, that's kind of uh, admitting to ourselves our own dissatisfaction. So often when we find ourselves in a place of exile, by the way, of course, exile 
literally is the forced removal uh, of a person from their homeland. But uh, in the book, I suggest that we all experience a variety of exiles in our daily lives that are more metaphorical exiles. It's a, you know, from my own story, it was a loss of relationship. It was a loss of an exile from my future plans and dreams. It was an exile from the world and the community that I thought was going to be uh, everything I would continue to experience. It was an exile from um, just all kinds of things. And I think we all experience those kinds of exiles. In the midst of that, again, we are, we, we so often lie to ourselves and pretend that either A, we shouldn't be honest about that because somehow, and I think we Christians often have bought into this idea that expressing dissatisfaction is somehow sinful. Yeah, uh, right. Which is just BS. It's right. it's and it's so classically American, really. You know, um, yeah. and so, so we we are not honest with ourselves, and we close ourselves off. We like build this wall around ourselves that that prevents Jesus from permeating that, right? And so, yeah. So I think the the first posture is being honest with ourselves, getting in touch with our dissatisfaction. Why is this current reality not good enough. Yeah. And the reason I say step one is being honest with ourselves is because we can't be honest with God until we're first honest with ourselves. So why is here not good enough? Why is this uh, current reality of my life uh, creating a, a, a genuine dissatisfaction? Why do I long for something more? And what is it uh, uh, about my current reality that's not good enough? Then this, the the the, the posture that needs to follow that, of course, is then honesty with God. And again, we so often try to employ jazz hands with God, right? We, yeah. you know, we look, it's like we think that God could be distracted okay. by shiny objects, right? Yeah. And we try to impress God with our piousness or by pretending that uh, things are okay. We come, you know, we have this ridiculous notion that if we uh, if we show God that I um, uh, if we employ kind of a positive thinking approach that God will somehow honor that with good things in our lives. Right. And it's, it's, again, total BS, right? And so instead, what God longs for from us is our honesty. So we're honest with ourselves about our dissatisfaction, and then we're honest with God. We cry out in need of a Savior. We acknowledge, I'm not capable of fixing this. I need, I need a Savior, right? right. right. And then well, the reason I said there's maybe a third posture is that what I have found both in scripture and in my own life is that as soon as we are honest with God, truly honest, we put ourselves in a place of massive vulnerability and that brings up all kinds of fears. Mm, So the third posture is really about exercising will or faith. I think those two are almost synonymous terms. Um, in uh, this holding to this idea that uh, that God is continuing to author a story, that Jesus is going to show up, uh, and with Jesus is going to come hope, uh, and then th- so those are the postures, and 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 as we employ those, um, I think over and over again, people experience uh, this new sense That's of fantastic. hope. Yeah, that hope starts. To, you know, I- go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I, I just want to say I fully agree with that. One of the things that, this is Mar, by the way, one of the things that I, I consistently say to uh, 
people in general and to myself is that you know we have in ourselves uh, in our souls we have a desire to know God and to be known by God but if we're not being honest we're not really being known fully by God and so that's that sense of of being honest with him really being uh, vulnerable like you said with our disappointments um, and and that, I think that's this is powerful stuff posturing that way one of the things I really enjoyed uh, about the book as well and just kind of shifting gears into a different uh, ideal of your book, you talk about uh, the enemies of hope and uh, the things that that cause that uh, to to be diminished in our lives. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to, to go go with you on some of those. Your first one is uh, busyness as usual. And that, that kind of surprised me. Um, but but what you say very quickly in the beginning is is nothing keeps hope at a distance more often and more quickly than the distraction of busyness. Could you could you unpack that uh, and and maybe the other enemies that you feel need to be because discussed? I think a lot of people wouldn't say, well, busyness keeps me from hope. Exactly, That's like a very yeah. very different idea. Oh, yeah. Well, I um, I guess uh, the reason that I uh, see that as one of the primary enemies of hope is that when we're filling, I, I think that. It's a choice to be busy, right? We again, we often so common for those of us in ministry, even uh, just believe that uh, my busyness is something that happens to me. Yeah. But really, it's a it's a choice to be busy, and I think most of us uh, step into an overcommitted schedule and busyness because it props up our egos and makes us feel important, uh, or because we want a distraction from the pain that we don't want to face. Yeah, um, and. The reason I think busyness uh, distracts us or even prevents us from experiencing hope is because we don't have time then to create the space to do the practice those first two postures. Yep. We yep. don't have time and space to be honest with ourselves and be honest with God when we're constantly filling up every inch of our calendars and everything else with giant to-do lists and busyness. So I think busyness is an addiction as much as any other addiction out there. Marco, I got a question for you. Hope is like, it's set in the future. Uh, have you ever experienced it or maybe you... Um had an experience where you achieve the thing that you were hoping for, whether it's growth in a ministry or a relationship or maybe growth in a business, and then experience the letdown of actually being there. You achieved your goal and having to need to, to reset hopes for the future. Can you speak into that experience? Yeah, that's a really great question, really interesting one. I do think that happens sometimes, um, and some of that is that we put our hopes in things or solutions or uh, points of arrival that we think are going to meet all of our needs. And then we get there and discover, oh, that's not it's not doing everything that I thought it was going to do for me. Uh, and so we need to recalibrate once again. Um, and, you know, I think this is a, it's an ongoing process. Um, I also think that one of the beautiful things that happens, if I can unpack the model a little bit more, yeah. is once we re, once we Jesus shows up in our lives and we get this influx of hope, we see that hope and longing start this uh, this relationship. This tango is the way I describe it in the book because it's this intimate dance where they're uh, influencing each other, right? And and again, Paul in in Romans says, uh, you know. 
why, why, who would hope for something that they already have, right? We hope for what we don't already have. So hope, our hope, our, our longings don't go away. Even when we receive hope in our lives, we continue to have longings. But what I've seen is that often those longings then start to get transformed. And when I'm in a place of brutal exile and pain, my longings are almost always fairly self-focused. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's that I have immediate pain that needs to be addressed. And so, my longings are about salvation from those painful, specific things in my life. But once we start moving out of that, then we see that our longings start to get transformed from inwardly focused to externally focused, that we start to see this transformation where we have hope for others and hope for the world. And so hope doesn't, uh, longings don't go away, but they get transformed. And that's when I believe we can start becoming hope casters. That's where the word of the word in the title of the book comes from, is this idea that we start spreading hope to others and to the world around us. That's awesome. So, so let me ask you, so Marco, that's great stuff and great stuff. If you haven't bought the book, you need to buy the book. You should be on your phone right now if you're listening to this, ordering it on Amazon. I just, I just purchased it. There. So you got another <laughs> Mike, one right now. Mike's, Mike's buying it in the midst of Literally. the podcast. Literally. Thanks let me, for preparing, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> he has kids going to college now, so... <laughs> Soon, yeah, not, not you. Oh. I'm at Marco. Marco, Marco, Marco yeah. yeah, I do. Um, yeah. One more book. For so them. let me ask you like a bottom line question, because I I met you in kind of before a lot of this stuff happened, and you know I, I look at you very very successful person, very confident person. Um, just just and then to go through everything that you went through, how are you different now? than you were before all this? I'm sure there are lots of ways. Yeah. Um, but I think probably one of the most significant ways um, has been a dramatic decrease in my arrogance. Um, and that wasn't only because of this experience. I think when you first met me, Mark, in the early 2000s, yeah. um, I was in a, uh, I was at the tail end of a pretty arrogant stage uh of my own career and story i I think getting the job at youth specialties and becoming the president there um kind of told me uh or i told myself man i've got i've got so much worth right i'm Mm -hmm. just i'm amazing and really to this day (laughs) i'm continuing to occasionally have to apologize to people who i offended during that era um, mm-hmm. that I, I'll have people say to me, oh, yeah, I, you and I met back in you know, the year 2000, and you really pissed me off because <laughs> this came off as so arrogant. And, and I have to acknowledge I was. I was just kind of a jerk. Um, and I, that process of trying to undo some of that and have Jesus transform that in my, in my own life began before this really bleak season for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I'm at a really different place today. And now I'm the most humble man. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I do think that um, there, there's a, I still have a good amount of confidence. I think it's part of my, um, my personality makeup. But I do feel like uh, that there's, I have a, a, a new level of humility and an understanding of my dependence on God and 
Jesus to provide hope in my life and that even the giftings that I do feel confident in, that they are things that come from God rather than because of my specialness. Yeah. Yeah. You're special. So, so Marco, we're going to kind of come, we're going to change gears really quite uh, dramatically here. So, this is John. What uh, what can you tell us about your tattoos? I mean, it's it, uh, there, there's all kinds of legends out there about your tattoos. So, can you uh, tell us about those? And uh, I, I doubt there's legends. There are legends about your tattoos. You really helped his air. That, that was you really helped. That was overreaching. Mark Kelsel just whis- whispered it in his ear. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, it's not like I have that many. It's not like I got full <laughs> sleeves or something. I no, do you have, have five of them. I do have five. <laughs> uh, Wait, why uh, do I know this? Because you went behind the curtain. You went behind the curtain with Behind the curtain and saw well, the tattoos. They're all, they're all things that uh, have deep meaning for me. Um, and in many ways, they're very much uh, statements to myself rather than for anyone else. Hmm. Uh, about what's most important to me. And so one of them is a reflection of my family. It's my wife and kids' initials. And then the other four are all uh, important statements of my uh, faith. Hmm. And so I have a Celtic triangle that's a symbol for the Trinity. And then I have a, a phoenix that's a symbol for rebirth. And I have a Celtic tree, which is a symbol for kind of a thriving life. Mm. And I have a cross of St. Patrick, which again is a deeply spiritual uh, symbol. And the new one that I'm about to get is Ooh. a heart of Christ that for me is very much a symbol of, a, again, a thriving, passionate life. One of my kind of life themes, my the verse that I just am so attracted to is that verse in John 10, 10, where Jesus says he's come to give us life and life to the full. And that's the kind of life that I, I long for is a life that's passionate and thriving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, my tattoos are some reflection of that. On that on that first trip to Haiti, by the way, a uh, little anecdote here, um, I remember being at a outdoor church service with a bunch of people and some guy from kind of the Haitian hood walked up to me. He was clearly not a churchgoer and he pointed at my tattoos and asked me, because tattoos are not very common in Haiti, and I found that I was able to really easily present the gospel by kind of unpacking my different tattoos. So, really, nice. they're an evangelistic cool. device. There, there you go. go. <laughs> That's the Baptist in you coming out. You're, you're a walking tract. Marco, I have an, another question that uh, that I think you can definitely answer. When you wrote the book, Youth Ministry 3.0, it was definitely kind of groundbreaking, kind of breaking some ideals of youth ministry for people. Uh, and so, as as you look at the generation now, uh, what do you think are the challenges for the church right now when it comes to reaching this generation? Yeah, great question. I, I don't know if I can identify one challenge. I think there are a bunch of challenges. In some ways, that book uh, was starting to identify some things that we're now fully uh, living into. Um, and, you know, that book's Uh, 10 years old, at least, maybe 12 years old. Uh, And I think one of the primary things I was addressing in that book was that uh, a programmatic approach to youth ministry of saying, uh, here's the one size fits all program that's going to work. Let's just copy what a big church is doing and um, that that just doesn't work anymore. And here's why. Um, And I would suggest that that's more true than ever today. Uh, When I look around, uh, and another thing is that since then, you know, the main thing that I do these days is lead these uh, 
these cohorts of 10 youth pastors in a year-long coaching process. We've had about 250 people go through this coaching program. And what I've discovered as I've worked you know, much more intimately with individual youth workers rather than just being you know, the guy who puts on giant events mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> is that the, the, the skill set needed to be a fantastic youth worker in 2016 uh, is a little surprising. It's, it's not – their secondary things are nice things like being able to be commu- a good communicator and uh, those kinds of things, right? The most important two skill sets are how to le- knowing how to lead collaborative discernment and knowing how to uh, understand – uh, and be responsive to context. So yeah. those two things, like uh, discernment and uh, contextualization, I have found are so critical today. And a lot of people are still not thinking that way. Right. Uh, I find over and over again, everywhere I go in the world, the very best youth ministries are weird. Uh, they, have <laughs> high, they have a high degree of self-awareness of their uniquenesses, and they embrace and celebrate those rather than trying to be the same as everyone else. Now, Marco, I got I got to ask you. So, all this stuff that you've done in youth ministry and writing and all this, all these things, you still work with junior high kids. Yeah, you still baby. invest in a small group of junior high kids. So, why? What is it about <laughs> junior high kids? You're a braver man than me. I spent about three years out of my twenty years in youth ministry and in middle school ministry, and then I did high school ministry after that the whole time. What is it for you that? And I'm sure there are a lot. Of youth workers will listen to this what 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 is it what is it about junior high kids uh i mean on one sense i could just say that maybe my maturity yeah (laughs) i was gonna say that but um but i really i find them so hopeful uh and working with them so hopeful they're they're so unfinished um there's still so much potential they're they're wet clay they're um still figuring things out i think so many uh years ago high school ministry was where the make or break decisions in life took place but really with changes in our culture Mm. it's like by the time they get to high school they're already kind of wet cement i mean things they've already figured out a lot of things uh and made soft commitments to an identity and um found they found a place of belonging that's informing who they are uh whereas in in junior high or middle school man that's still all up for grabs um so i just find it to be absolutely a critical uh stage for faith development and identity formation um and super life-giving it's of course it's crazy frustrating too (laughs) oh man small group i had these last two years uh, of guys that I just graduated was one of the hardest groups that I've ever led. And what I came to realize by the end was that I absolutely loved each of the guys individually. Like none of them were jerks. They were all awesome guys that I really liked individually, but I really struggled with them collectively. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And there's the secret. Now, now I want to ask you, uh, and there, there might be a fair amount of youth workers and different people that hear this podcast is, um, you worked with Mike Iaconelli, which yeah. a lot of people um, who are in youth ministry, he is kind of an icon to them. I know he is to me. And uh, and even in the general public, his writings. Uh, and so Mike passed away in 2003. Um, he actually died. I don't know if you remember this, but just a couple weeks, it was a couple weeks before 
we went to Saddleback or just a short time before we went to Saddleback to, to work on a project. And it was my first thing that I did with, with you specialties. And, uh, it was, it was amazing to be in the midst of uh, you all, you all were grieving him as a friend and you had lost a friend. I had lost a guy that I saw from a distance and, Mm -hmm. and really respected, but it was weird to be in that mix with you all and you were in such grief. Tell us the people listening, tell them a little bit about what was it like to work with Mike and, and to be around Mike as a, as a person. Yeah. You know, remember, you probably remember, and a lot of people would, that phrase that he used so many times about how his life was like a roller coaster ride, or he wanted it to be uh, a ride. He wanted to, you know, pull into heaven and say, oh, what a ride, you know, that (laughs) that idea. And to be honest, uh, life with Mike was a roller coaster, and and (laughs) it was awesome. It was often wonderful and beautiful and fun and full of life and it was often really challenging too (laughs) (laughs) he was he was a wild man and he was unpredictable and um that was beautiful and it at times challenging too um so he was a very generous and gracious person yeah also had his own demons and struggled with some stuff and that would spill over into our relationship in some ways too i will say that um you know, while his death was one of the more painful things I, I went through in my life because he really was at that point my best friend and yeah. my boss and a mentor and all kinds of things in my life. But he also um, he also created this just whirlwind of stuff. And uh, Tick Long, who was, you know, our president of right. events at that time, he's the executive pastor at my church now, so we're still very close. We, we came to realize, and Carla, Mike's widow, um, we all came to realize uh, that his death in a strange way freed us up to step into a new chapter, both as an organization and as individuals. Um, and Carla uh, Iaconelli came to, at the, in those days, say that Mike's death was his last gift to us. That it, it, and, and in many ways, I feel like the two years following his death were the best years of youth specialties ever. Certainly, the best years in my time there. Yeah, uh, we a lot of fun. really, really flourished, and it was because we were able to uh, continue to live into the values that Mike so uh, passionately cared about, without having to have them embodied in one person. Hey, Marco, it's been awesome having you on. And before you go, we want to play a little game with you. Are you you cool with that? Game on. You're a youth ministry. Yeah. You work with middle school. We're so junior yeah, hires. <laughs> Games so, are awesome. So we want to play a little game with you. It's called 10 Bad Questions. We play this with a lot of our guests. We're going to ask you just 10 random questions. They could be about anything. They might be personal to you. These ones are more personal than I've ever made them. So uh, <laughs> they will be uh, 10 bad questions, and you can just say whatever comes off the top of your head, and you can uh, share as much as you want or as little as you want. And, I'm a little and afraid. The moral of the story is don't be good friends with Mel. Yeah, don't be good friends because they become personal, the questions. So so cue the music here in post-production. And uh, so here we go. I'm going to ask you question number one. All right. So question number one of 10 bad questions from Marco. You're stranded on a desert island with one book, one cigar, and one band's music on your iPad. What are they? Besides the Bible. Oh, thanks for clarifying that. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) One book, one cigar, one band. 
Yeah, um, the book is so hard. I, I'm a pretty avid reader, um, and being and I, I being stuck with one book, man, what could I read over and over and over again? I am gonna choose uh, Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal. Oh, I've heard about this book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, there's your book, Lamb. Go ahead. Now people are Amazoning that. Mike's, <laughs> Mike's buying it right now. It's definitely in my top five all-time books. Nice. One cigar, one band. Wow. Uh, let's see. I guess cigar, I'd probably choose a Partagas Serie D number four, Cuban cigar. Nice. Um, and... One band. I'd probably take the entire catalog of Elvis, Elvis Costello. Ooh, Elvis okay. Costello. All right. All right. Uh, this is John. You own hundreds of weird T-shirts, we've been told. What is your favorite? Those change from time to time, too. Um, I certainly have one I like right uh, now a lot that uh, says... I am super mature, and it has, it's actually a wedge of cheese that is saying that. So. <laughs> I'm super mature. Awesome. Wait, it's a wedge of cheese, a wedge of cheese. saying I'm like super cheese. mature. Yeah, like, like, like the cheese. cheese thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know what a wedge of cheese is. <laughs> All right. You just, you, know. you sounded confused. <laughs> it's not confused. It's okay. a wedge of cheese? It goes over big in Green Bay. Yeah. <laughs> just saying. All right, number three. If you could run your fingers through Donald Trump's hair or Joel Osteen's hair, which one would you choose and why? <laughs> we ask this one all the time. I think I'd probably, man, I think I'd pick Trump's. I just want to grab a hold of it. <laughs> Trump is running away with this election. Yeah, he is. He is. People, people that are feel bad about themselves pick Osteen, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they want to rip his toupee off. That's why. They want to see, is it real or is it hair plugs? I mean, for all I know, you might have already run, run your fingers no, through Joel Osteen's hair. Is that Trump makes me angry, but Osteen makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, number Number four. All right, number four. Uh, one time, I, Mark Helsel, I saw you dressed as a cheerleader on stage. Do you remember this? I sure do. And I am personally scarred for life, okay? Yeah. So I want to know, if you personally, when you look back on that decision now, how do you feel about it? Well, uh, mostly I think it was a hilarious moment that provided a cathartic space for all these youth workers who are struggling with the fact that we had to walk through a gauntlet of made-up cheerleaders in a competition for that convention. <laughs> That's uh, right. Every day. conflicted space for all of us, right? Because we care about teenagers, but then we see them forced into this weird, fake world. <laughs> and so it was a cathartic moment. And if you remember right, uh, we also got pelted by... Uh, finger, finger blasters. Yes, finger all blasters. I remember. Believe me, I'll never forget it. It was one of the one of my top moments. It was it was very very funny. So uh, I also took a, we also took some really angry crap from a handful of people for that who thought we were <laughs> mocking these kids. But I would do it. Never again. please the Baptist. Anyway, go ahead. All right, all right, number five. If you were middle school right now, what would you be into? Ah. Uh, I would, I would like to say I'd be into uh, indie bands and uh, stuff like that, but I think I was probably, as a middle schooler, 
uh, a little more desperate to try to win approval from other people. So it'd probably be a little more uh, common approval. The Beebs. Yeah. He'd be into the Beebs. The Beebs. You would be a believer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Margo, what was the worst speaking engagement that you ever went on? Number six. Number six. Oh, gosh. Um, the first one that comes to mind, I think there were probably a lot of them, but the first one that comes to mind was one where I had had some conflict ahead of time with the, uh, the event. It was a youth event and I'd had conflict with the event organizer, uh, right up to the time I went on stage and I was, it really almost was like, I could tell that he had regret, he regretted having me and I regretted saying yes. And I went up to do my thing and um, just was not in a place spiritually where I, um, you know, was in the right place at all. And he had really uh, expected that I would do a response time. And it was a big room of, you know, 1,500 kids or something like that. And and I, you know, remember doing this response time and not one person responded. <laughs> So oh, I was just this impediment to the movement of the spirit. So uh, did you yeah. just keep asking, like, do I see a hand? Do I see a hand? Buses will wait. So. <laughs> keep, keep those eyes closed. Keep, keep, keep oh, I see that up. hand in the back. Yes. You're making yes. up hands. You're God is doing something right now. <laughs> oh, right. So, Marco, number seven, you travel a lot. What's the scariest moment in a plane, train, or automobile that you can remember? I never had a super scary experience in a in a plane. Um, like it's think all senses, think smells, sounds. <laughs> uh, because I travel so much, I you know I, on a fairly regular basis I get upgraded and in the first. And here's what I've discovered that because I'm a t-shirt wearing, shorts wearing, bearded. Batman. I don't I don't look like a first class passenger. <laughs> so as soon as somebody starts farting in first class, everyone in first class assumes it's me. You've been stereotyped. You're totally profiled. This kind of rolls into our next question perfectly. I understand that you wrote a song called Poo Stew. Explain this. Please explain. This is uh that's number eight right there. This is concerning us all. Yes, you know, my children and I used to make up these silly songs. We had a whole collection of them. Pustu was definitely one that my son and I came up with. <laughs> what is this? Is it what we think it is? Yeah, it's exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> Rather than going through the lyrics of Pustu, how about if I uh, sh- sing you a short one of our silly songs, I'll which was it. called God Made the Butt with Two Halves. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Which simply goes like this. God made the butt with two halves. It's a whole thing but it has two halves with a line down the middle and a pillow on each side. God made the butt with two halves. Oh, man. Dude, that's probably the best middle school song ever. I'm going to teach that to my kids today. That is beautiful. You sing that in first class. <laughs> anchored in Genesis 1. Genesis anchored. anchored. I like that word. Anchored in Genesis 1. Songs rejected from VeggieTales. That was... Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you and Phil Vischer were tight. <laughs> oh, dude, kids would love that. That would sell. That would sell. That would See, but here's the problem. Make the vegetables don't have butts. <laughs> so it wouldn't make sense in that context. You can make millions of dollars on iTunes selling that one. This has some people that are Jesus as a friend of mine. Millions. All right, number nine. Uh, where would you go to survive the zombie apocalypse? And what is your weapon of choice? Ah. Uh. Are you searching online? Are you searching online? <laughs> I might be. Um, well, my son and I, uh, who, my son's is, uh, just graduated from high school. He's 18. And we did this uh, last spring break. We, we went on a father-son adventure that we'd been planning for two years. We wanted to go somewhere that was uh, not somewhere I would go for business. And it was just our thing. And so uh, we went to Easter Island, which is in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific. Right, um, right. And it was fantastic. So, you would very remote. I would think it would be extremely safe from zombies because it's a five-hour plane ride just to get there from Santiago, Chile. So, wow. let's say I'd go to Easter Island, nice. and um, I don't even think I'd need a weapon of choice. There'd there'd only be a few <laughs> zombies. We'd kill them off, and then uh, the rest of us could live blissfully. There you go. I like it. You could kill them off some poo stew or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number 10. Number 10, if you were running for president this year, what would your slogan be? Make America great. <laughs> what would your slogan be, Marco? Oh, wow. Besides, give him space. what was the butt song <laughs> name? <laughs> give him space. Butt has two halves. That would be your... How about can't we all just get along? <laughs> <laughs> all right, Marco. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for being with us today. We really had a lot of fun with you. Before you go, um, just tell us um, where... T- tell people where they can find you, anything you'd like to point them towards, your blog, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. So they can they can know about the book, anything like that. Yeah, blog is why is Marco W H Y I S M A R K O. So why is Marco dot com, uh, and my uh, ministry is the Youth Cartel dot com. And yeah, you can find me on all the normal social media stuff uh, on Twitter. It's uh, Marco's Beard and uh, Instagram and stuff. It's it's why is Marco. But if you just search on my name, you you find me. Very cool, my friend. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks for Marco. being with us. And uh, we will be back here in a few moments to wrap things up here on Post Christian Pastors. Don't go anywhere. And we're back. Yeah. That was yeah. fun. He was just such a great guy. I I, uh, I so appreciated the time that I got to work with with uh, with Marco and and appreciated his spirit and uh, he was a great leader. I, I love that he said that you know he struggled with a time of. Um, arrogance. arrogance and you know we talked about that in one of our earlier podcasts about sure. leaders uh, just giving into that sin yeah. of arrogance and you know I, I guess I was on the tail end of that so I didn't really catch a lot of that because I really felt welcomed by him and you know when I when I came into that organization I wasn't a person who had written a ton of books or you know was a nationally known speaker i was just joe youth pastor and just mark from pittsburgh yeah and i happened to get that opportunity and and he always treated me uh in a great great way but it's it's also it's also amazing to see you know what he went through with the with the loss of his job and just kind of the exile that he went through to see him 
really write a great book about hope, which really did, like you said, came out of a lot of pain. Yeah, I think it's where hope is birth is in those dark, you know, dark moments that Mark talked about, and uh, just seemed like a great guy. I'd love to hang out with him. He seems like the kind of guy that <laughs> he's a lot great of fun. to hang out with. We had an unbelievable hang. I like listening to just his thoughts. Very well read, obviously, very smart, intelligent guy, but also seems like a fun guy as well. And it, you know, it's amazing thing when you read that book and you listen to his story is that it is so anti-American hmm. to think that hope in this culture now to believe that hope is birthed out of suffering. Sure. Like we just, we do everything we can to avoid any suffering. Yep. And maybe that's why we don't have much. hope. I think it is. I think we live in that kind of in between. Right. Well, you know, he, he cited that passage from Romans, right? You know, perseverance and, and we don't have these steps. We, we don't go through cause we, we try to avoid suffering at all costs. We don't have these steps of perseverance. We haven't taken those steps, correct. which lead to hope. And so a lot of people don't have any hope because they haven't went through really hard things or or they've avoided, try to avoid hard things. Yep. So, well, it was great to have him here. Hey, uh, thanks for listening today to Post-Christian Pastors. And uh, we are wrapping up. We uh, Marvin, Marvin, John had to take off. So for Marvin, John, we're about to, we're about to sign off, Mike and I. But if you want to find us, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on uh, Podbean, Podcast Addict. I mean, you can find our podcast anywhere. Please go to our Facebook page. If you have any feedback for us, questions, we will respond to that almost immediately. If you have anything you'd like to hear on the show in the future, have any suggested guests, we have some great guests coming up like Andrew Marin, Mike Foster, Scott Sauls. I mean, we have some amazing guests coming up. So we're really looking forward to the month of July and, and all the things that are going to be on that. But hope you're having a great summer. Thanks for joining us here on Post-Christian Pastors. We're out. Say goodbye, Mike. Cleveland, you don't have to wait anymore. You are champion. <laughs> yes, we have to give Cleveland his due. Congratulations, Cleveland. Northeast Ohio. For right now. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>